This is the second of probably ten portions of uh, an exegesis out of the book of 1 Corinthians here. It seems appropriate that we would remind ourselves of uh, what is normal in a church. Um, There's goodness, uh, no doubt, that is normal, and there are challenges and difficulties that are also normal and regular in the life of a church, and the church at Corinth is a good place for us to really consider, in a sense, uh, the microscope of God's Word and see, uh, no doubt, some of these things we uh, are not largely experiencing, perhaps, as a body, but nonetheless, it's good for us to remind ourselves and be reminded by the Word of God just what happens when uh, God calls a, a sinful people to Himself, when He puts them all together, and so forth, and so we see that in this book of 1 Corinthians very notably, and so it seems appropriate that we would spend some time there at this point in the life of our fellowship here. And so this really is largely the idea of the doctrine of the church. We see it expanded here in the book of 1 Corinthians in this letter. And so it would be appropriate, no doubt, for you to think of these uh, expositions of 1 Corinthians to be really in the category of the doctrine of the church. We see that, uh, we saw it last week in the, in the doctrine of sanctification, this idea of what, what, is, what does the church do? What is her purpose, her goal? No doubt it, it is largely about a preoccupation with her founder, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that preoccupation, we see that God intends to, to not only be finished in His work, of justifying the sinner, but that of sanctifying the sinner, that of bringing them into perfect conformity to His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, which, of course, we'll realize ultimately in heaven. And as we really consider this third chapter today, it seemed appropriate that uh, I read actually a, a little verse in Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 4. Hopefully it will become apparent to you why I might share this proverb with you regarding the doctrine of the church and the difficulties and challenges in Corinth. But nonetheless, Proverbs 14.4 says this, Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. But abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. When you put sinners together in the context of a church, it's a messy business. It's, uh, it's challenging. It's challenging when, when people come together. I was uh, just talking this morning with Evan about chickens. And the reality is, is that chickens can get bored pretty quickly. And it gets ugly when they get bored. Uh, and while it is unfortunate, the same no doubt is true of a fellowship sometimes. And what we see here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is, among other things, an exhortation that God's people be preoccupied with Christ. And the idea with this preoccupation with the Lord Jesus isn't that the challenges of everyday life are minimized in that sense, or that uh, they appropriately are outshined by Christ. Uh, But the idea is, when we're preoccupied with our Savior, we see things differently. And we have different priorities. 
Uh, and so that really is the idea that uh, I think comes out of this chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I think it would be, you know, in our fellowship, we, we, um, there's some unique aspects to, to planting a church that is really quite wonderful. There's, there's a significant uh, body, really, of labor that is involved in just uh, a Sunday morning worship service and just being a part of that. Of of setting things up and so forth is a is a is a period actually of fellowship that is that is very sweet, um, uh, and so there no doubt we see different gifts and people come together and so forth and the same of course occurs when we put things away, and uh, but there also what we see in any fellowship or there are different levels of involvement as well. And one of the things that uh, would be important for us to understand is that, is that you know, if, if we're going to really enjoy what it is that God has done in the fellowship of a church, it's going to have to be in the context of a covenantal commitment to one another, of these binding relationships. Uh, that, and that, that's the only way, a commitment to one another through this process of, of being one with another in a church uh, is, is the only way that exhortations, that the concept of authority, even of uh, some of the challenges of, of, dis, of discipline and discipleship, that's the only way that any of that makes any sense at all. Uh, it, it wouldn't work really any other way without a binding, uh, in some ways, perhaps even what appears to be a marriage covenant. It isn't exactly the same thing, and, and I'm not trying to say that it is, but nonetheless, it is something that would be akin to this kind of relationship. And when you bring that to a people that perhaps, uh, particularly in the land of Corinth here, the day of Corinth, were first-generation believers. There was no corporate memory of what it was like to be a part of a church. (laughs) There was no corporate memory of what it was like to be a Christian. There was no corporate memory of who the Lord Jesus was or the concept of a Savior or or any of that. There was none of that uh, in in the body of people at Corinth. Uh, And in some ways... Uh, no doubt there was a certain refreshing aspect of that because there were some things they didn't have to unlearn. They didn't have to unlearn really bad theology because they didn't have any of that. Now, they had some, they had some, uh, some, some bad ideas, no doubt, that they brought uh, that, that needed to be dealt with, and we see the apostle and his followers uh, working through that. But nonetheless, these are the things, uh, and this is just this is normal, normal church life, Right? And so it shouldn't shouldn't surprise us or shock us, um, uh, you know, at, at at these ideas. But the Apostle Paul shows really a way forward here, and um, I think it would be certainly be helpful for us to really spend some time here. Uh, you know, um, one of my uh, heroes, no doubt, is Martin Lloyd Jones. A number of you are familiar with him. Uh, most of his sermons, thankfully, are available, and I would encourage you to listen to those uh, if given the opportunity. I would encourage you to make an opportunity to do that. 
But nonetheless, uh, many of you know that Lloyd-Jones went to Westminster Chapel in London. He was there for a very long time, from probably the early 30s through World War II, all the way up till around 1970 or so, 71 or so, something like that. And, of course, he was an incredibly gifted preacher, uh, considered by a number of people, I think appropriately so, the last of the Puritans. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones had an incredible gift to proclaim the word and to involve himself in an understanding of Scripture and its application. He fought a tremendous battle uh, in his day, as did those that were before him. Uh, We think of Ra, we think of Spurgeon, and those men also had tremendous uh, theological issues that they dealt with, and that largely impacted not only their health, but also the ministry that they were involved in. But Lloyd-Jones was concerned, even in his own fellowship, that it would be a church and not a preaching station. That it would be a church and not a preaching station. And there's a tremendous difference between the two, and I think it's noteworthy that uh, a tremendous servant of God, such as Martin Lloyd-Jones, would concern himself with that in his own fellowship. And I think that it really goes to show the challenges of even understanding what, what, it, what is the fellowship about, what does God intend in the church, and so forth. And we see that, of course, in this letter as well. The reality is the closer you get to people, the more love you will enjoy and the more challenges you'll have to work through. And this is the fellowship of His Son. Chapter 1, verse 9 of 1 Corinthians, the letter to 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul has a synonym for faith in Christ. He has the word, the fellowship of His Son. And it's this fellowship that we explore in this letter to the 1 Corinthians, to the the first letter to the Corinthians here sharing one another's burdens, growing up together in grace and unity, which requires the fresh soil of transparent and teachable humility. The reality is intimacy reveals personal issues and sins. Pride rears its ugly head in many ways in these cases, and one of the things we see, no doubt if you have an ESV Bible sitting in front of you, you'll notice the uninspired head to the third chapter, and that is divisions. And as you go through 1 Corinthians, it wouldn't be very difficult for you to say, oh, here he's dealing with this problem, and here's this problem here, and now he's going to deal with this problem, and now in this chapter is this problem, and now we have this problem over here that he's dealing with, and so we see that when we look at chapter 3, the issue that he's dealing with, although this isn't the first time he brings it up, he's going to bring it up also in chapter 1, in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same ambition, excuse me, in the same mind and the same judgment. The reason I have the word ambition on my mind is because Calvin says that ambition was the very, the very root of the evils, the church of 1 Corinthians the letter was written to ambition ambition uh, is one of those words 
whose definition has in some ways changed, but I'm not sure the definition actually has changed so much as our perspective on ambition has changed. And it hasn't changed for the better. Because ambition is a concept that is centered in self-absorption and pride. Uh, And so... uh, a figure no less than John Calvin would look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and see that the concept and the concern of ambition, of pride, was at the root of the divisive issues at the church in Corinth. And again, that shows up for a number of reasons. Number one, the desire for personal acceptance, the desire for the accolades of men, the desire... Uh, to be seen as being uh, successful, of being popular. This desire in sinful humanity seems insatiable. It seems, it seems like a bottomless pit. There seems to be no end to the multi-headed monster of pride. And that, that shows up here. Again, it's not abnormal. The Corinthian church, while they had some significant, breathtaking challenges by way of their debauched culture, the reality is is that their humanity at Corinth was not terribly unlike our own. Secondly, there was a focus on persons other than Christ. Those called together by God to form a church should be joyfully preoccupied with the founder of their salvation and their local church. There was a focus on persons other than Christ. Verse 4, chapter 3, one says, I follow Paul, another I follow follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What, What is Paul? It isn't... Uh, that the work of these servants of Christ was unimportant. It's just that they were focusing on the wrong thing and their focus had as its foundations and roots pride. Thirdly, there's a focus on centrally established personal preferences other than the Word of Christ. Now what I mean by that is, there are those who uh, are persuaded that the primary problem uh, of Christianity today is this, or that. And so, everything I do is going to be focused on this, or that. On these preferences that basically are understood in terms of sensuality. And what I mean by that. Uh, it's just, what do I think, or how do I feel, what do I see, and this kind of thing, as opposed to what the Word of God reveals, uh, not only about who God is, but also who man is. And this is a problem. This is a problem uh, in churches that are committed to the Word of God, and that problem is, is sometimes there's, there's a diminishment of the importance of anthropology. What is man? What is man? Uh, what, is, what is woman? You know, uh, what, what are our inclinations? How do we think? How did we get here? Uh, and this kind of thing. And, and the Apostle Paul also addresses that. Many, perhaps most, who are initially drawn into faith in Christ view their faith as a sideline. Something that's done in the margins of their lives. And so investments of time, money, emotional energy, and learning are all something that would get the things left over. Now, this is a hard thing to accept. 
But it is true. The Bible indicates that that a faithful individual called to Christ, as well as those individuals that are called together into this one organization that the Lord Jesus Christ died for, the church, those people, uh, as they grow in health, will be preoccupied not with themselves, but with Christ. And that there will be this intentional idea that I actually am building my life around the church of God. Fourthly, there's a focus on real or perceived personal offenses viewed through the lens of self-conceit rather than the riches of being known by Christ and growth and understanding the riches of Christ. There's a focus on real or perceived personal offenses. I think perhaps one of the most noteworthy fictional books of our time, and I would encourage each of you to read it, is C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. In the preface to the Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis indicates that we should think of hell as a place where everyone has a personal grievance. Everyone has an offense to harp on. Everybody is dealing with some complaint. And so the Apostle Paul, of course, deals with that here. And also there, lastly, perhaps as we think again about the manifestations of pride as you bring people together, there's an inclination sometimes springing from personal pride to disagree, to be disagreeable, to lack clarity and knowledge of relevant biblical principles. The Apostle Paul says right here in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not yet ready for you're still of the flesh. Now, this isn't just some conclusion that the Apostle Paul has drawn. As a matter of fact, uh, he bases their being people not of the Spirit, but of the flesh on their jealousy and strife. In other words, these are actually not Christian behavior. These are fruits of the natural man, things that we do naturally. How would you feel if the founder of your local fellowship said, I wish that I could address you as spiritual people, but I can't. I can't get into the depths and the challenges of what it is that the Lord has revealed because you're not ready. You're not ready. Now, What did the Corinthians think of themselves? Well, chapter 4, verse 8, might give you a little bit of insight. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. I'm telling you, there's some precursors to uh, 
Texans here in the place of Corinth. Hey, Paul, we got it. We'll take it from here. And Paul said, you guys aren't ready. What I see is the expressions and manifestations of the natural man. There's jealousy and strife. There's divisions. I, I can't even cut through all this stuff, man. I, we're just trying to, we're trying to see what the Lord is doing here. And you guys, are, you guys are way beyond that. But you're about 10 degrees off. Now, what is the biblical alternative to divisiveness? What is the biblical alternative to divisiveness? It's not shallowness. There is a thing that some people call by the name of unity, and it's called shallowness. That's what Facebook friends are. They're always buddies because they don't actually know each other. So the biblical alternative to divisiveness it can't be shallowness, right? It's unity. It's unity. But how do we get to this unity? And that's why I encourage you to think of Proverbs chapter 14. Without the oxen, the manger is clean. But you get no work with a clean manger. It's a messy business, but it's a good business. And it's the only way that we can really enter into the true joy that God has for us here in this sinful world. The greatest expression of our ability to delight ourselves in the fellowship modeled for us by the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is in, is in the context of a faithful local church. Let's consider a few passages of Scripture regarding this concept of unity. Romans chapter 12, verse 5. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Now, what are the implications of one body? Uh, The illustration here, of course, is to the human body. And while sometimes it might be handy for me to have an arm that's actually at my house right now while I'm here, it, it doesn't really work that way, right? The, the obvious idea in the one body is that we're actually physically co-located. One body. So in order to really enter into uh, you know, the beginnings of the goodness, of the sweetness of the fellowship of Christ, is we actually have to be physically together. You're right to reject the idea of Zoom church. Good for you. You saw that as a problem? 
biblically wise choice. 1 Corinthians 10.17 Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now, no doubt there's an allusion to the Lord's table here. The Apostle Paul will deal with this in chapter 11 of this first letter to the Corinthians. But what's the idea? It wouldn't be far afield to recall that old nutritional commercial that had something to do with you are what you eat. That's the idea that we see here. They all eat the one bread. In other words, if our nutritional spiritual diet is all the Lord Jesus Christ, then the reality will be that we will all be similar to the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.28, There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I think that has something to do with the fellowship of the Son. I think that has something to do with our interpersonal relationships. I think that has something to do with the way that we receive one another. Where there's this level sort of idea. There's no hierarchy, right, in the local body of Christ. The Lord Jesus said those, those who would ultimately lead, those are the servants, right? So it doesn't even, even those that lead, they're not like somehow superior That's the idea. It's not a rejection of this concept of people called of God, but it is a rejection of the concept of a church hierarchy. We love Ephesians 5.22. At least many of the modern men do. But they can't get past 521. John Calvin says the mutual submission of one to another is a thing perhaps most difficult. That's the idea that's expressed in Galatians 3.28. Ephesians 4.13, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity. There's this word unity. And that's what we're talking about here of the knowledge of the Son of God. Again, uh, the purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ laying down His life for us, His perfect life, living a perfect life for us, paying a penalty that we couldn't pay, wasn't merely, wasn't merely to change our legal status. It was that we might be conformed to the image of His Son on this planet Earth. Sinful as it is. 
1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And it is true. If everyone thought the same as you did, there would be unity. But that's not the kind of biblical unity we're talking about. The reality is, is that a fellowship of redeemed people, we will be able to conform to the image of Christ and understand the ways and the Word of God as we understand it and apply it. 2 Corinthians 13.11 Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Now, 2 Corinthians 13 is a conditional statement. Rejoice, aim for restoration. This word here, translated restoration, will show up in our passage in 1 Corinthians 3. This idea has to do uh, not only with the mending of the nets, of the fishing nets. There's this idea, that's where the word comes from, but also to make a ship seaworthy. It has to do with restoration. And the idea really uh, is that we're coming to a condition that we actually haven't been at. We're restoring, what are we restoring? Not something that we've had as sinful believers per se, but something that we've actually never experienced, and that is this unity of fellowship that the world cannot, they have no corresponding idea. I mean, perhaps a bar after work or something would be the closest that that people without Christ could come to. Right in this idea of fellowship and love one to another. Uh, it seems that there are people that have a certain level of commitment to one another, a certain amount of familiarity, a certain amount of things that, we, that unfortunately all they have seems to be in the hour they spend after work at the local pub. But the Apostle Paul has in mind from the Lord something far more rich than that. To make the church seaworthy of the high calling that God has given it. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And then what? Well, the God of love and peace will be with you. There is a certain aspect of the conditionality. You say, well, I want to experience this. Well, to grow in your experience of the fullness of the fellowship of the Son... It's going to involve a commitment to one another. Ephesians 4.3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's this maintenance of unity. Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Again, the context here is unity. So that whether I come and see you or maps and I may hear of you, that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. 
Now listen to what the Apostle Paul says to this Philippian church. If you had to pick a church that might be in the running for the Apostle Paul's favorite church, it would probably be the Philippian church. And in the whole book of Philippians, he doesn't have anything to say about them by way of exhortation. That's not true. That's not at all true. This is an exhortation right here. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, if I were to call you up on the phone, and I were to say... Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Have a good day. Click. The old phones used to click, by the way. What would you think of that? Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You might say, oh, well, I, uh, he's got the wrong guy. I don't know why he called me and told me that. I mean, can he not see who I am and what I'm doing? Like right now, I'm reading my Bible, right? And so, but the Apostle Paul to that church, again, which would likely be the church that is most favored by Paul, what a joyful letter written from prison. The letter to the Philippians. And he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What an, what an exhortation. I mean, you can live your whole life on that one phrase. With every, every thought, everything you do, every word you say, every book you read, every time that you have some time to yourself, every moment, you're like, only would this echo in my mind, only let my life and my manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. First Peter 3.8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And we should say at the outset here that unity is more than thinking together. It's doing together. Right? It's doing together. It's the fruit of godly thoughts. This is unity, not for unity's sake. It's unity around the truths of God. This involves humility. It it involves becoming a fool in the eyes of the world. It involves unlearning biblical notions and learning biblical ideas. Unity, being the biblical opposite of division, is to move toward people. I was reading Ed Welch's little book on relations in the church. And among those steps that he has is this simple idea of moving toward people. That's unity. Moving toward people. Think of it. It's not a natural thing for most of us to do 
to move toward people. Why? Because I don't want to loan you my truck. Because I don't want to, like, get involved in your challenge. Right? But that's the sweetness of the fellowship. Praying for one another. Knowing one another. Becoming a fool in the eyes of the world. The idea here isn't that we can't know anything. Or that there are no answers and we should be happily ignorant. That's not the idea. This isn't case sirrah sirrah here. That's not unity. It's not the kind of unity that the Apostle Paul is talking about, the Corinthians. There's depth here. The Apostle, excuse me, Calvin says, let us then observe that nothing is more consistent on the part of a Christian or the part of Christians than to be at variance among themselves. For it's the main article of our religion that we be in harmony among ourselves. And farther, he says, on such agreement the safety of the church rests and is dependent. The safety of the church rests and is dependent upon our unity around truth, our warm fellowship based on this unity, this idea that as we come closer to conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you will, this little triangle concept, we move closer to the Lord Jesus Christ at the top and what happens is we get closer together. Math you can count on. There is some helpful geometry in the Bible. Conforming to Christ brings us together. The safety of the church rests upon this. You may say, wow, that's a pretty strong statement. Well, what would you think? What would you think about all of the talk of a warm, loving Savior, a Redeemer of humanity, the sweetness of fellowship modeled after Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet we can't manage to get along? That's a pretty poor manifestation of saving faith, right? So much for the introduction. Let's look at chapter 3. Verse 1, I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. The Corinthians were far from forming their thoughts based on divine revelation. They were babes in Christ. They had received some of the first principles of Christianity And yet they were very proud of their wisdom and knowledge. Verse 2, I've already mentioned uh, their lack of proficiency. I fed you with milk, not solid food. The Apostle Peter uses this idea of milk not in the same way that Paul does. The Apostle Paul is getting at a food for babies. That's the idea here with milk. It's not a commendation. You should be able to take in more solid food. 
The challenges of our day require such, but they had a lack of proficiency, but yet there was no lack of confidence on their own part. This is such a common issue. Such a common issue. Verse 3, they're still of the flesh. You are still of the flesh. While there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? You ever heard the complaint, yeah, I don't get fed there. Don't get spiritually fed there. Well, we can all recognize that there's different levels of meals that are served up exegetically at churches. We can affirm that. But the Apostle Paul makes no bones about it. In chapter 3 and verse 3 right here, the Apostle Paul is implying that if you're not getting fed, it's your fault. Christians are to blame when they don't grow in grace and knowledge. This is a very uncultural idea. This is absolutely counter to a culture that declares with its greatest emphasis and passion regarding learning things, this phrase, I'm bored. I'm bored. And if I'm bored, what is the problem today? The problem is with the teaching, right? And the Apostle Paul says, no. The problem isn't with the teaching. The problem is with you. Verse 4, For when one says, I follow Paul, another I follow Apollos, were you not merely being human? Contention and discord about their ministers, evidence of their carnality, their fleshly interests, and their affections that swayed them too much. Paul has a word for them in verse 7. He says, yeah, you guys are making a really, really big fat deal out of like me and Apollos and Cephas, right? The Apostle Peter and so forth. And what does he say to that? All this big fat deal you guys are making out of that, what does he say about that? He says, neither he who plants or he who waters is anything. You guys are churning up all kinds of stuff about nothing. Only God who gives the growth. The preoccupation with the founder of our faith. Verse 11, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The Corinthians' immaturity and ambition can amount to building a poor building on the foundation of Christ. And if we go on here, following up with verse... Uh, 13, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. 
If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, the Apostle Paul is getting at the simple idea that when he came to Corinth, by virtue of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the Apostle Paul as a skilled master builder, laid a foundation of Jesus Christ for that church. There it is. He was used of the Lord to establish that. No doubt he involved Titus uh, as well. As we see, he has an exhortation in his pastoral letter to Titus, I'm persuaded, involving the issues that he's dealt with here with the 1 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul left Corinth. And he left a magnificent, if you will, in today's contemporary language, he left, if you will, an absolutely sound and perfect concrete slab foundation. And they could could build on it further. Future ministers, the believers in Christ there at Corinth, they could build upon that foundation. They could build upon it with things that would last forever. Seemingly so, anyway, on this planet Earth. Or they could build on it with wood, hay, and stubble so that years and years and years later, someone could walk up and they could either see a beautiful edifice that was maintaining the unity in the Lord Jesus Christ, or they could see nothing but a foundation But nonetheless, the foundation would still be there. Because it's founded upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, the day will reveal what kind of builder you were. And that day will disclose not a poor foundation, but what was built upon it. And that's true for each of us individually as God's people, but also, of course, as a church. Verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. Let no one deceive himself. Remember when your mom used to say something before you walked out the door? <coughs> something maybe having to do with safety. <coughs> and then when things go really bad that day, you think back on what your mom said. didn't think about it. Paul says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool. We are in great danger of this when we have too high an opinion of ourselves. The way to true wisdom is to place our opinion of ourselves at an accurately low level and be willing to be taught of God. 
Just a few applications here. In verses 1 and 2, there's this idea of spiritual people versus people of the flesh. Paul's writing to a redeemed people. He's writing to a redeemed people. He's writing to the Corinthians as believers, as those who have been redeemed, purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ to a redeemed people. But yet he categorizes them as those who are spiritual and those who are not or natural. And the idea really isn't so much of a really a perversion of biblical doctrine of carnality, of this carnal Christian idea, which I think should be rejected. But the idea uh, is this idea that there is a significant lack of growth and urgency among some, and they they couldn't really be looked upon uh, as spiritual people. They're infants in Christ, only able to eat milk. Food for infants. And as difficult as it is to receive this idea that they were in fact culpable for their inability to eat solid food. Verse 3, jealousy and strife confirm their being people of the flesh. This is a hard thing for us to hear maybe the jealousy and strife among us, those baser affections that we have still yet associated with the sinful residue in our own bodies, they are indications not of being people, spiritual people, but of being people of the flesh. Calvin says, the mother of all these evils is ambition. Growth in grace involves joyfully being a part of spiritual progress and not caring who gets the credit. The divisiveness in Corinth was a very significant issue. As I mentioned, he addresses the issue with Pastor Titus, who spent a good bit of time pastoring the Corinthian church. He addresses it directly. He tells Titus in Titus 3, 10, and 11, as for a person who stirs up division... After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he's self-condemned. Divisiveness is horrifyingly destructive in a fellowship. It's unacceptable. And it's it's an indication, it's a fruit, not of faithfulness, of course, or even theological depth. But we should also say that divisiveness can be common when you put people together who have strongly held beliefs. All disagreements, questions, concerns, and opposing ideas are not divisive. It's not divisive to ask questions, be concerned, be a Berean, right? Test the Word of God proclaimed, hey. But transparent humility is the only real context of meaningful discussion. Verse 10, the Apostle Paul being a master builder in the foundation of Christ. The exhortation that we have to be careful how we build on it, I would ask you a question. How are your buildings going? Be careful how you build. 
Not unlike the exhortation that the Apostle Paul had for the Philippian church, right? Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. How are you building on the foundation of Christ? All must be careful how they build upon it. Verse 16, this concept of being God's temple, we touched a bit on this last week, the concept of being set apart, of being sanctified, of being identified as uh, of Christ, moving on in that way. 3.19, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. I hope to address the distinction between man's wisdom and God's wisdom, but nonetheless it's brought up here. In this last section of chapter 3, a significant aspect of the divisions in the Corinthian church had to do with a distinction between man's wisdom and God's wisdom. Now, a question for us would be, do you know the difference? Do you know the difference? <clears throat> and you might say, well, yeah, of course, I know the difference. God's wisdom is what I think about stuff. And man's wisdom is what other people think about stuff. Do we treat it that way sometimes? Rhonda was just bringing up last week when the church that Charles Spurgeon pastored left the Baptist Union Associated with that was a censure of Spurgeon by the ministers in that union. Apparently the censure was something like 2,000 voted against Spurgeon and maybe was a handful of people affirmed the position of Charles Spurgeon in the downgrade controversy. God's wisdom isn't necessarily going to be in the majority. Man's wisdom has a lot to do often with passion, apparent biblical support, the volume of information. Paul says in chapter 1, verse 17, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom. Just a few final exhortations. One, to humility. It's, it's something that we have to be so conscious of. This recognition of our need to be teachable every moment, to receive, to move toward people. This is real courage, I think. <clears throat> we... Uh, we rightly commend a motto of, of Semper Fortis, of always courageous. And, and a great expression of that is to move toward people. To move toward people. To move toward new people. To move toward hurting people. To move toward unbelievers, to move toward people that have made some terrible decisions, to move toward people that are really easy to be with, to move toward people that love you well, to move toward those as well. 
That's real courage. Also, the idea of intimacy, talking about suffering, of sin, of critical issues, impacting a person's outlook and understanding. And lastly, and perhaps most importantly, again, I'll repeat this simple idea of being preoccupied with Christ and His truth revealed. Think about the kind of unity that we could enjoy as God's people if we were continually thinking about and filtering the ideas that we have, which we should. We, we need to be people who are thinking critically about the Bible and about its application, who are reading faithful literature and so forth and growing in faith and learning how to take on uh, food that is uh, certainly uh, more nutritious than milk. And so uh, we... We should be a people that are doing that at the same time to be preoccupied and think about, okay, its its effect and its amplification as I filter it through the person of the Lord Jesus and being preoccupied with His purposes. So may we keep on with God in that way.